series that we're going to close out today. You asked for it, and we've been in this thing like 10 weeks. So we've tried to get to all the questions. I still haven't got to all of them, but I got to put a you know, an end to this series. So we've been 10 weeks and you asked for it. And a lot of questions have been explored and I encourage you to go on our website, albanync.org. All of our messages are available there for you in the message player. Um, If you wrestle with any of these questions, you can go back, look at that. All the notes are available for those messages as well um, on our website, albanync.org. Also, we do have a church app. It is Neighborhood Church. Uh, produced by ShareFaith, and so if you do a Google, not a Google search, but if you do an App Store search for uh, Neighborhood Church ShareFaith, you should find our app. It'll be our logo. You should see it. Uh, That's also where you can get messages and notes. Also, we're going to try to push events through there so you can kind of know what's happening in our church, so keep that app handy and and load it on your smart device. If you need any help doing that, I'd love to talk you through it, just not on a Sunday morning. Uh, And of course, as always, we use the Bible app the YouVersion Bible app is available for you to use right now, right here. If you do that, just go to Menu, Events, and find Neighborhood Church in your Bible app, and that'll be the notes right there. Today, I want to tackle questions about salvation. Quite a few questions were submitted about salvation, and, and I think these are good questions uh, to wrestle with because I know a lot of people who wrestle with, um, am I saved or not saved? I'm, I'm really just kind of struggling with what I feel. Okay? So we're going to talk about salvation, and uh, we're going to start the conversation about salvation with kind of what I would say a pretty heady topic. Um, so hang on there. If you just kind of came here and said, I just want to come to church, get encouraged, we'll get there. Uh, but I want to tackle someone's question because actually a couple of questions similar to this topic were introduced in the series from some people, and so I grouped together into one question, and it goes like this. Is the doctrine of predestination biblical? And if so, how does it coexist with man's free will and not violate the character of God? Now, some of you, your eyes just totally glossed over, and all of a sudden, your coffee cup is far more interesting than the topic we're about to get into. But I I want you to hang in here with me, because there's a reason why this topic is very, very important. And I want to explore this question. So what does it mean, predestination? I mean, some of you are going, like, I have never used that word. I have never spoken that word. I've never heard of that word before. Well, it's actually in the Bible, all right? So that's why we're going to talk about it. And it is a doctrine that has been held for hundreds of years within the church. Now, what I want to explore are the two different viewpoints concerning this idea of predestination. So what does it mean to, pre- to predestinate something? What it basically means is that there's, there's to destine someone for a particular fate or purpose. When it comes into the spiritual realm, basically what it means is to determine an outcome or a course of events in advance by a divine will. So here's what it means in church talk, all right? The doctrine of predestination is that God predestinates some to eternal life or salvation and others to eternal damnation. Now, if you don't like the word damnation, hang in there. We're going to say it a few times. Just plug your ears when it comes. Um, In its truest form, the doctrine of predestination believes that God predetermines, predestinates people for hell or people for heaven. Now, where did this come from, this idea of predestining? Um, There's some verses. Romans chapter 9, verse 22 and 23 is one of those. Paul writes, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, 
bore with great patience the objects of his wrath. Let me just unpack this because it's already kind of confusing, right? So here's the point. Because of sin, remember, Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, bad decision of their free will, disobey God, sin was birthed in the humankind, which now made us only objects of God's wrath, unless God would intervene. All we could be are objects of his wrath now because we have severed our relationship with God. Sin got in the way, and we are now depraved morally. We are sinful people, all right? And all we are is objects of his wrath. That's what happened because of sin, right? So he bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy? Here's the part, whom he prepared in advance. Okay, so this is that idea of predestination. There are some people, we're all objects of God's wrath, but there are some who will actually have his mercy, that he is predetermined ahead of time. That's where this doctrine is, is loosely based out of. Also, Romans 8, 29, verse, and, and verse 30 as well. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. There's that word. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That means there'll be some he's chosen to be like Jesus that will be saved. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That's speaking about Jesus. And those that he predestined. So this select group of people, we'll call them the elect, all right? Those that he has predestined, he also then called because he predestined them. So he's going to call them. And those he called, he also justified. That means he made them right before God through the work of Christ Jesus. And then those he justified, then he glorified, which means they will have eternal life. Okay. So what is the controversy here? Over the years, and it began in the 1600s, there were two different individuals that were not exactly contemporaries with each other, but they all lived in the same, dec- I mean, the same century. One of them, the name John Calvin. How many have heard the name John Calvin before? Some of you maybe who have a Baptist background, uh, John Calvin would be hanging in the lobby of your church more than likely, all right? So uh, he, his doctrine is very, very involved in the Baptist movement. Um, but John Calvin in the 1600s um, developed through his study a doctrine that became known as Calvinism, all right? And there are five main components to Calvinism, which we'll look at here in a moment. You don't have to write this stuff down. There's no pop quiz. Certainly, don't get confused with the information, but I have to kind of present it briefly so you can get it. But then there was also a guy in the late 1600s named um, Jacobus Arminius. And Arminius had his own different beliefs that were almost contrary to what Calvin believed. And so what happened now is churches have embodied the doctrine of Calvin of our Arminian. And so what you've had now is churches that are either Calvinistic or Arminianist or somewhere in the middle. What does that mean to you today? Here's what Calvinist doctrine in its basis form is, is about, all right? Here it is. The first one, they believe that uh, in total depravity, that every person is enslaved by sin and therefore unable to choose God, which means in their depravity, God has removed free will. They cannot choose God. They are nothing but depraved, wild creatures, so to speak, in their sinful mind, all right? So they're depraved. They cannot, they're unable to choose God. This does not mean that every person is all evil and doesn't mean that they can't be good. It just means there are some people, we're all depraved, and unless God does something in us, we will never be saved, all right? Total depravity. Number uh, Number two is this, unconditional election. That God has chosen from eternity those that he will save based on no condition of themselves. Right? So in other words, God in eternity past said there are people 
X, Y, and Z who are going to be saved. And I have determined that ahead of time. And so nothing they did has deserved my mercy, but I'm choosing them. All right? So nothing of their merit or faith. And by not choosing others, that means that God is choosing to withhold his mercy from them. So there's some that will receive his mercy from eternity past and some that won't. This is the Calvinist viewpoint of unconditional. Nothing they have done, either good or bad, will earn that. Nothing of their free will can move them closer or further away from God. God has just determined you will be saved, you won't be saved based on nothing you have done. Number three, therefore, because of that, there's a limited atonement, which means that when Jesus died, the death of Christ paid the price only for the sins of the elect. That means that Jesus died on that cross, but only for the people that God predestined from eternity past that will be saved, okay? Which links us to the next point, irresistible grace. If God has elected certain people, those whom God is determined to save will inevitably come to saving faith. In other words, they cannot resist the grace of God. It overrides their human will. So what that basically means is even though they might initially resist the truth about God, they will get saved because God has determined ahead of time they are going to be saved. So they can't resist it. They will be saved. It will somehow override ultimately their will. They will be saved or their will will be changed to want to be saved. I don't, I don't know exactly how it works, but they will be. Which brings us to the last point, the perseverance of the saints, that all of those who have been chosen by God, which we'll call the elect, will continue in their faith, which means they will never lose their salvation. So another word we hear with this topic is called eternal security. Some of you might have heard about eternal security, the doctrine that once I'm saved, I am always saved. And there is an aspect of that doctrine I believe. I believe that once I become a follower of Jesus, nothing can take me from his hand except for me. If I choose to say, forget you, God, and walk away from the grace and mercy, I believe I'm walking into very dangerous territory outside of the grace relationship with Christ, and we call it backsliding, or those who have lost their salvation. Calvinists believe you cannot lose your salvation because you have no choice. God chose you, you will be saved, because Jesus died for you and you alone, therefore you can't resist it, and so therefore you can't lose it, okay? That's Calvinism. Now, Basic Arminianism looks a little bit different. It goes like this, that the salvation or the ultimate condemnation of a person is the result of a God-given faith or unbelief within that person. That means this person has a choice, that they will either choose God or not. So this outcome is determined by them, by their will. Number two, divinely provided atonement is sufficient for all persons. Okay, so Jesus died for all, as the Bible says, but here's the difference. But it's applied only to those who trust in Christ, which means I had to make the decision to choose to follow Jesus. While he died on the cross for all mankind, it's not like everybody gets a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? We have to make a decision with our will to choose to trust Jesus. That's the Arminius view. He died for all, but you have to respond to that. You have to receive the gift and trust it. Number three, no person can save himself or herself without the help of the Holy Spirit. No one can respond to God's will that all will be saved. In other words, um, 
I can't save myself. I'm not good enough. But I hear about the gospel of Christ preached, or I heard it on the radio, or I read it in the Bible, and the Holy Spirit comes and brings conviction to my heart, and then I respond to that conviction, either by faith or by continuing to doubt. So there's the sense that I can't save myself, it's still a work of God, and we'll talk more about that. Number four, God's grace applied by the Holy Spirit is the sole source of good and of human salvation. In other words, this the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. I can't do that. God does that by the Holy Spirit in me when I've made by faith a choice to follow Jesus. But that grace can be resisted. In other words, you can sit under the preaching of sound doctrine of the Bible. You can have the convicting work of the Holy Spirit kind of beating you up on the inside, but you can say, no, I can resist it. That's what they believe. This grace can be resisted. Think back to the Garden of Eden. God gives them a tree of life, says don't eat from that tree. What they exercise? Their free will. They chose contrary to God. People can still resist that even today. And number five, God's grace in the life of a believer enables resistance of sin. It means we can live a victorious life in Christ Jesus. And Christ will keep them from falling when we are in relationship with him. But Arminius believe you can indeed walk away from the faith. You can backslide. You can say, enough, and I'm walking away from God, and now I'm in a state of, of, of sin once again. Okay? So, bottom line, here's the big difference. Because some of you are just like, okay, that was just way too much, and now I'm just totally lost. So let me just bring it down to, to one tension point, all right? The primary point of tension between these two views, Calvinist, Arminius, is this. Calvinists believe in the sovereignty of God, which I also believe God is sovereign, but they believe in the sovereignty of God to the extent that it overrides human will. God is sovereign. What He has determined will be, okay? And I have to ask the question, okay, I get that. God, where was your sovereignty in the Garden of Eden when you actually gave man a free will? I mean, it's a unique combination God allowed, sovereignty, but yet free will to be at work. God must know what he's doing, right? So Arminius believe free will has to be involved. That man's free will has to choose to follow God. So it all breaks down to either God is absolutely sovereign and he determines everything down to those who will go to hell and those that won't. And they can't help the fact they're going to hell or heaven because it's going to happen. Or the Arminius who believe my will has to be involved to choose God or to deny God. Everybody kind of clear on at least where it breaks down. All right. So the question reduces to this then, does God elect people because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's Arminius, I've made a decision to believe, does he accept them or elect them because of that, or does God elect people in order that they will believe, that's Calvinists. Now, that might sound a little confusing, it's just a matter of maybe some semantics, but either I'm going to choose or it's going to happen, Calvinist versus Arminius. Now, the primary argument against Calvinism that's leveraged by us Arminius, which I happen to be an Arminius, the main argument is this. Um, what about the character of God? How can God predestine someone to hell, never allowing them an opportunity to repent, never allowing them the, the work of the Holy Spirit's conviction to choose to follow him? Why would he just say, sorry, folks, you're off the bus? And you didn't earn it, but you're not, there's nothing you did one way or the other, it's just you're not in it. 
Okay, that's the argument against Calvinism, especially when this verse gets used. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone, everyone to come to repentance. This is the heart of God, that none would, none would perish. We've heard this verse elsewhere in John three sixteen, right? None would perish, but all would come to repentance, okay? So how do we look at Calvinism, this idea that God's just chosen there will be some based on nothing they have done to earn it, that they will go to hell? Okay, how does that align with 2 Peter 3.9? And then the primary argument against the Arminius. So the Calvinists argue with Arminius the sovereignty of God. How can you dare say that human will can override sovereignty? I mean, God is God. What he determines is going to happen. So the Calvinists say, who are you to say, I can choose God? It's God who chooses. And what they say then is basically my salvation is now a, is based on my work. And they say the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness that I have done. So if I choose God, that's a work. So that can't be salvation because I chose God. That was my choice. Salvation was now based on me, not on God. See the difference? So that's their argument against Arminius. And they use this verse, Romans 9, 16. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So otherwise, there's nothing you peoples can do. It's all God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, you look at that, that's a very strong argument for Calvinism. God's going to make the choice. But yet, how does he do that in relation to human will and not lose his character as being an unloving God? That becomes the pinch point with this whole idea. Now, I'm not smart enough or scholarly enough to really argue these varied points, but I do hold personally the Arminius view, as does the Assemblies of God, which is the denomination that our church is affiliated with. From my understanding, God's sovereignty is satisfied in the work of the Holy Spirit that He does in the lives of people when the conviction of the Spirit is at work in us and we choose from what God is doing in our life to respond. So I believe God's sovereignty remains intact. God is still working. God is still willing. I can, though, choose to do it or not. Okay? So this allows God to be sovereign, but it also allows human will to play. And if it was our human will that screwed everything up, right, in the Garden of Eden, then shouldn't it also apply that our human will could make things right with God? He's did this for us, but I have to choose it. Now, when Jesus was talking to um, uh, his disciples about the Holy Spirit, he said, this is what the Holy Spirit's going to do, John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away, that's Jesus, because unless I go away, the counselor, that's his word for the Holy Spirit, will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, what does the Holy Spirit do? When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Right? So the Holy Spirit, God, is at work convicting the world of sin. I believe that that allows the sovereignty of God full reign to exercise and act upon humankind. We then, as it goes on, in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. Now, here's the thing. Is belief something that I choose to do or something God forces on me? That, that becomes the question. 
Is belief something I choose or something God forces on me? So the Calvinist would say um, that you can't help but be saved. And here's my question for the Calvinist. Why do missions work? Why preach the gospel? If God has determined that you are going to be saved and there's nothing you can do to get that salvation, and it's going to happen because it's irresistible, why preach the gospel? Why send missionaries overseas to Africa? Because those people are going to discover God because God is going to make it happen. Why do missions work? Why get in the way of what God wants to do? Romans 10.9 tells us this, though, in response to the Calvinist argument. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but declaring with my mouth and believing in my heart sound a lot like expressions of my will. Then you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe. That's an act of my will. And then we're justified. That is an act of God. I can't justify myself. Jesus died, and because of that, God justifies me, which means I'm made right with God. He looks at me and says, you're right. My son died for you. It's all right. You're covered, all right? Justified. And it's with your mouth. I can't force, I mean, God still doesn't force my lips to move in a certain way. I have to make a choice, right? And it's with my mouth that I profess my faith and are saved. Sounds like human will at work. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who what? Who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay? So far, Calvinists could agree with that because God predetermines who's going to call on Him. But here's the next point. But how can they believe? That's an act of will. In the one whom they have not heard. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? So that is as written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So in addition to that, the fact that obviously there needs to be a preaching of the gospel that I can respond to so I can hear the word of the Lord, the Holy Spirit can work through the preaching of the word and bring conviction to my life, which Jesus said was going to happen, that then I, by my will, choose to believe or continue to deny. I know people who have felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and they have continued to resist it. I, I know people like that. But there have been people I've seen who have felt that same conviction, and they responded to it. And they were like, I need God. Right? So, if salvation and damnation are entirely activities of God that He determines without any human choice, then in my mind, God is dishonored and appears unjust and maybe even cruel. Because why would He seem to offer a gift that can't be accepted? You see what I'm saying? The Bible is like everywhere, right? I mean, you go to a hotel room, open the nightstand drawer, what are you going to find? A Bible. So what if I choose to sit down? I'm in a bad state of mind. I'm at a hotel, so I open the drawer, there's the Bible, I start reading, and I read about the hope of Christ and salvation, but then come to find out I'm not one of the elect, and nothing within me can respond to the message that I'm reading, that I need this hope, but I can't respond to it because I'm not designed to respond to it. You see, that, that, that seems to me kind of harsh, 
That while everybody can hear the gospel, God's saying, well, that's not really for you. And maybe you can emotionally respond to it, but you're not really saved. So that, that for me, becomes a real strong, strong challenge because to see God is good and loving and yet he elects some and passes over some that will spend eternity in hell and can't do anything about it? I don't know. I, I wrestle with that. And, and it's, if it's true, preordained in God's choice is the only active involvement in a person's salvation, then it might be argued that that sinner should not be blamed for God's decision to eternally condemn them. Why are you sending me to hell, God, when you gave me no other option? Right? Does that seem just? I don't know. To me, it doesn't seem just, right? Ultimate responsibility in such a case seems to lie with God and not the person. And, and for the individual is, is, is helpless to choose, therefore they shouldn't suffer for what was imposed on them. So for me, removal of their ability to respond to Christ then takes away the, the responsibility to respond to Christ. And that just seems like a terrible place to be. So here's another way to look at it. Could predestined, as we've talked about in Romans, could this idea of predestined and the elect be that God who is beyond time? So we live in this thing called time, space. We live here. But God lives in timelessness. All right, so God is eternal. So that means he is in the past, he is right now in the future, and he is in our present. So God is everywhere within time. That means from past, eternity past, where God is still actively present, I know this is really hard to understand, but God is like the ultimate time warper, right? He's in the past fully. He's in the present fully. He's in the future fully right now. So he sees it all. I know that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we're like, you know, here, fixed people. So what if God in his timelessness and eternal wisdom sees that Kelly Dufour, born in 1970, will eight years later, kneel down in a little metal chair at a Wednesday night kids' class and receive Christ as a Savior. And then follow Christ, not perfectly, but follow Christ uh, as he's being nurtured and grown within the church and ultimately become a pastor who would preach the gospel. Is it possible that God would see that way before the foundations of the world were formed? Absolutely, because God is in now, he's in past, he's in future. God is in all of that in his timelessness. So if he could foreknow that I would do that, could that be basically the way we would look at Scripture where people say that he is predetermined who will? Maybe the truth is he just knows who's going to. In fact, let's come back to Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, for those God foreknew. I just want you to see for a moment that that presupposes predestined. Okay, I just want you to stop and just recognize that when Paul lays this out, he says that those that God foreknew, that means God knew you before you're even a wisp of the eye in your father's eye. All right, I mean, he knew you. And you know what you're going to do. Now, within measure, you, you have the free will to make some choices, but God in his unbelievable sovereign wisdom knows kind of how things are going to play out. So if he can look at that and foreknow you're going to respond to Christ, then you could be basically an elect person, an elect, that God is, God sees, I'm, you're going to get saved. I see it, 
right? So those he foreknew, then you could say he also predestined. That means I've planned for you. And for that person who I'm seeing their life and they are never making the decision, they've heard the gospel preached, they've had the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, but they have never responded to it. And they continue to have a hardened heart toward it. Would it be possible that God would foreknow who's going to spend eternity in hell? Yes. But this allows God to be sovereign, but yet human will to still be at work. So those that he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Conformed, by the way, is an act of our will to become like God through our activity, through our living, that he might be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined then, he foreknew, predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Now, I'm done there. But I do want to just add a little comment to why this is so important. In... in in the Calvinist mindset, if you take away that I can make a choice to serve God, then you have to also take away their eternal security message. So that's why it's a whole package deal. This whole Calvinist thing's a package deal, because you tweak with one, it messes up everything else. So God is only sovereign. That's it. There's no room for free will in the Calvinist viewpoint. And I believe that God still has allowed human will to be at work in our world today. So that's why, you know, it's, it's, it, it can be an issue. But here's the point. I was just having this conversation with somebody earlier this week about predestination. And I said, you know what, let's, let's agree about this. Let's agree that God loves the world and that he sent Jesus his son and that we have the mandate to preach Jesus. And if we do that, people will hear and they will choose to respond. If you want to say they were pre-elected to respond, fine. If that makes you sleep at night, cool. But I'm just telling you, our responsibility is a major in the majors. We're going to preach Jesus. We're going to talk about how we need to find salvation in him. And we're going to let people respond. To me, at the end of the day, does that really matter? Because if I'm in the back of my mind seeing my, my uncle who is totally resistant to the gospel, what if in the back of my mind as a Calvinist, I start saying, well, maybe he's not one of the elect. So, sorry, uncle. I'm not going to invest any more energy in you because I think you're damned to hell. Sorry for the words. That's like a whole bunch of bad words together, but those, those are biblical. You get my point? If I just move to that direction, it takes away the burden of evangelism. Let's, let's preach Jesus. Let's lift him up and exalt him that people will hear and respond. And let God sort out the did he foreknow, did he predetermine. Let's just let him deal with that. But my point is you've got to respond to the gospel of Christ Jesus and live within it. Okay, quickly, two more questions. Question number two, how can I tell I have the Spirit of God in me? I've given my life to God, but I don't know if He's accepted me. This is a great question, because a lot of people wrestle with this particular concept of not feeling saved, not feeling saved. Uh, I remember being a young boy before, when I was a kid, like I talked about, in the metal chair receiving Christ. I thought something was like going to happen, you know, in me, like something crazy was going to happen. And I prayed the prayer with the leader that was praying, and, and my day moved on. But I still look at that point as a defining point in my life. Now, did I glow? I don't think so. Um, I didn't really feel any, like, super spiritual energy, but I felt at peace with God. But then I can remember remembering things that I had done before I got saved 
and wondering, well, did he really accept me? Because, you know, I got these things. So this is a really important question maybe some of you have wrestled with. Let me just remind you of a scripture, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. And you also, you, including whoever feels this way, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. What was that seal? That was the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit that Jesus talked about. Remember, he's going to come. He's going to guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. In other words, when you're saved, here's what happens. God, the Holy Spirit, comes and lives in you. Now, some people feel different when they pray that prayer. They feel something within their heart. For some, it might be, I just feel lighter. I've heard that term used. I just feel lighter. Some have said, I feel clean. Others have kind of said, you know, I, I feel a, a passion within me to talk to other people about what God has done. So there's been certainly something that has happened, that, that the Holy Spirit is at work, but I'll tell you, it, it doesn't make you do bizarre things. Your head doesn't spin around and projectile vomit, all right? I mean, it's just the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you. And it, the Holy Spirit begins that regenerating, sanctifying work within you, that you're saved. But you might not feel a whole lot different on the front end of that. But here's the good news. You believe in Christ Jesus. You made a confession of your will to receive Him as Savior. The Holy Spirit comes and it lives in you. And it is a seal, a guarantee that you are saved. John 3.16, Jesus was talking about how we're saved and what happens when we're saved. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Just rest in that for a minute. Whoever believes in Him, you're not condemned. God's not looking at you, finding some way to harm you, or to judge you, or to catch you doing wrong. Not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the, one, in the name of God's one and only Son. So here's the good news. God has accepted you in Christ Jesus. And Peter speaks about that. In fact, he was having a, a church business meeting because he was out ministering one day to a Gentile household. The guy's name was Cornelius. And, and Peter goes down to this Gentile's house. He's a little bit resistant ahead of time because the Jews believe salvation was only for the Jews. Not for the Gentiles, but through these remarkable visions and the voice of God, he goes to the home of Cornelius and he preaches the gospel there. And they believe it. And the Holy Spirit fills their lives. And Peter's like, whoa, I guess Gentiles can be saved. And I'm so glad they can because I'm a Gentile. And here I am today saved. And I'm so glad that happened. But, so he had to go back to his Jewish friends and say, look, I don't know what happened, but I was preaching to these Gentiles and they got saved just like we did. And so they had to have a special meeting that says, okay, I guess Gentiles can be saved. Aren't you so glad that meeting happened? And in Acts 15, verse 8, here it is. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them, this, these were the Gentiles, by giving them or giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. 
So he does not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. So when you approach Christ by faith, your heart is purified and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, which is the mark that God has accepted you. And what you have to learn to do is rest in that. Not get lazy, but just take comfort in the fact that, God, I believe this is true. Because those that he saves, he fills with the Holy Spirit and then begins to lead with the Holy Spirit, which Jesus talked about what the Holy Spirit will do when he comes. I've already used this reference before, John 16. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. In other words, just to kind of end that verse there, here's what happens. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, and then things ultimately should begin to change. For example, your appetites toward the things of the the sinful nature should begin to taper off because you want to know God. The more you begin to read the Scriptures and the more you begin to follow Him, there should be a sense that that kind of repulses me. In fact, there might have been a point when some of you got dramatically saved. It was like to go back to what you did before was like, I can't do that because you're so saved. At least that's what you felt like, right? So there's the sense that I should be repulsed by my sin. Things should change. I should want to lean more toward God and reading Scripture. I should have an appetite to know Him better because that is the work of the Holy Spirit within us, all right? Now, if you don't sense that going on, then you have to go back and say, well, did I just emotionally respond to the message or did I really believe and accept Christ as my Savior? And you know what? It's okay to ask that prayer or say that prayer 5, 10, 20, a bazillion times, you know, because God hears and knows. But eventually, friends, you got to rest in the fact that He loves you and has accepted you. Romans 8, 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption. So, and by Him, by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. That's the most intimate terms of a father. Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. So you are. Rest in that and pursue Him with all of your heart. Don't doubt. That's what what happens is we look at our past and, and go, did He really do that? Did He really forgive me? Yes, He did. And that leads us into the next question, and I promise this will be brief and I'm done. We'll get you out of here. Third question, I want to be water baptized, but what does it mean for my past? I have a troubled past, so does it make me a new person in God's eyes? What can I expect? Um, water baptism. How many of you have been baptized before in water? I'm not, yeah, thank you, you can put your hands down. We're not like doing recruitment right now, I just wanted to, just, just, just so I can understand where we are. All right, so what is water, I mean, if it, here's the bottom line, water baptism does not save you, okay? Doesn't save you. Uh, otherwise, we would just have baptism tanks here on a Sunday. We'd have you come walk through. I'd baptize you, send you on your merry way, and, and you would be saved, right? So water baptism has no saving merit to it. We don't buy special water like from Rome, from the Pope, and if you happen to get in it, you know, you're saved. It's, it's the city of Albany water in a tub, all right? That's what we baptize you in. So if baptism doesn't save you, what does it do? Okay, so let's talk about that. Well, what does save us? Let's back up to that question. What does save us? Jesus. Okay? The death of Christ on the cross was the solution to our sin problem. Only our confession as Christ as Lord and our desire to follow Him 
brings us salvation, okay? End of story. There is no and then you got to be baptized because there's some belief out there that unless you are baptized in water, you won't go to heaven. Uh, There's some belief out there that unless you are baptized and speak in tongues, you won't go to heaven. Uh, None of those, by the way, is correct because what happens is you're adding other merits to salvation. It's Jesus plus water plus tongues, and that somehow leads to, to heaven. No, I believe that we are partakers of new life when we accept Christ as Savior. So then what's the big deal about water baptism? All right, so water baptism, while it does nothing for you spiritually, it is a very powerful declaration of what God has done for you. Throughout Scripture, especially in, in the New Testament, we see water baptism used. There was this one time that Philip, who was a follower of Jesus in the book of Acts, he witnesses to a, a, an Ethiopian. And the Ethiopian's reading the Scriptures and doesn't quite understand it, so, so Philip comes and kind of tells him about it and talks about Jesus. And the guy says, I want to get saved. This is my condensed version. And so they pray, they get saved, and he's like, I want to be baptized. Now notice what happened. Salvation took place and then water baptism. So Philip's like, hey, here's some water. Let's get baptized. So they go out and he baptizes this Ethiopian. He was already saved, but what that became was an identification outwardly of the work Christ did inwardly. It becomes a symbolic action that demonstrates what Christ did. Now, maybe you grew up with a different viewpoint of baptism, but here at Neighborhood Church, when we baptize people, we already understand they've received Christ as their Savior and Lord. They're making a decision to follow Him. And when they come, they're confessing their faith in Him as Lord and Savior. And then what baptism does is it is a symbolic act of what they did. Well, not they, what Jesus did in them as they responded to the message of, this, of salvation. So what happens? They go in the water, symbolic of dying to themselves. The grave, the water was very symbolic of the grave, that Jesus died for our sins. So we're also choosing to go into the water and die. Now, hopefully the pastor picks you back up out of the water and you won't die, right? But the whole point is it's symbolic of the death that I've already confessed in Christ to my sins, that he's forgiven me. My past is gone. Nothing's going to hold that against me any longer. And then when I come out of the water, it's just symbolic of rising to the newness of life that Christ has already given me. And I'm following him, and I'm declaring to others that I've made that decision. And it identifies you with the body of Christ. All right? So it doesn't save you. It's kind of like a Bimark card. How many have a Bimark card? right? I have gotten by Mark without showing my magic green card. <laughs> Unbelievable. And in fact, I've bought stuff without them ever seeing my green card. I'm a total rebel. So why do they have the green card still at Bymart? So you can go on Lucky Number Tuesday and see if you won, right? Other than that, it's, you can go to Bymart and not have the green card, apparently, right? They're not watching it. So I, I look at kind of, now this is a bad example of baptism, but follow the idea, all right? I'm going to heaven because I was saved by Christ Jesus and his work on the cross. Baptism is an identification that I did some paperwork to get the Bimark card, right? That's what, that's what baptism based, it's an identifying with what Christ had done and identifying with the body of Christ and declaring to my observing, witnessing friends and family that I love Jesus with all my heart, and I'm choosing to follow him. That's baptism. When John baptized in the River Jordan, 
He was baptizing for the repentance of sins. That means people repented of their sins, and then they were baptized as a demonstration of their repentance. So it doesn't save you. It doesn't put you in any better standing with God. It doesn't transform you. It is the symbolic of the work Christ already did. All right? So we will be having baptisms soon. And so if you've been kind of wondering, well, you know, why should I be or does it do anything for me? Yes, I love celebrating this with people because it's a declaration of what God has done and his saving grace in the lives of people. And I'll tell you what, it does things emotionally for people. It is powerful, it's, but it's not necessarily mandatory for salvation. Okay? We're saved by Christ. But what a great way to celebrate it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. And while it seems like we've been just about everywhere on this topic, God, I, I pray that you would just not allow confusion to be the center point of leaving today. But instead, I, I pray the center point would be you, Christ. That even when we talk about things like predestination, the important thing for us to know right now is that, God, you love us, and you sent Christ to die for us, and we have a choice before us to respond to you. So for those maybe who are here who are exploring faith, God, I pray they would come back and hear more of knowing what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I pray that they would respond to you today. If that's something that the Holy Spirit's working in their heart right now, that they feel like they need to get right with you, God, I pray in this very moment, your word shows us how that we just confess with our mouth that you're Lord and believe in our hearts that you're raised from the dead and, and confess our need of you as a Savior that we're saved. And that's something anybody can do right now in this room. And I would celebrate that with them. And God, for the rest of us, Lord, perhaps what we need to understand is you've called us to be messengers of your grace to others, to our family, to our friends. So we continue to desire to do that. For those that might be wrestling with the certainty of their salvation, I pray that the word spoken today would confirm in their heart that they are saved. And as they follow you, nothing can take that away. And their past is gone. You don't hold that against them any longer. So thank you for that assurance today, Lord. And those that maybe desire to step forward in water baptism, God, I pray they'd recognize that you've saved them and that's what they can celebrate through baptism identifying the work that you've done, and we want to celebrate with them. So, Lord, send us out of this place as messengers of your good news. Maybe we don't feel adequate to share that, but, God, our life can begin to share that good news and let it bleed into our conversations that we have at work and at home and in our neighborhoods, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.